Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 to 58. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. I want to tell you about something that is a problem for you and for me, even though you might not know what it is. It's called confirmation bias. And here's a definition of it. This isn't mine. This is a dictionary definition. It says that confirmation bias is the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. We all do this. All of us. Here's a couple of easy-to-see examples. For example, if you believe that more strange things happen on nights when there's a full moon, by the way, it doesn't, if you believe more weird stuff happens when there's a full moon, anytime there's a full moon, you will sort of exaggerate in your mind anything, the weirdness of anything that happens. Right? If you break a nail, you'll go, oh, full moon. That's why, right? If your kids won't go to bed when they're supposed to, you'll, man, full moon, here they go. But necessarily, you have ignored that your kids wouldn't go to bed and you also broke a nail when the moon was at like waxing crescent or whatever those other phases of the, of the moon are, right? You, you kind of shoo away the evidence that doesn't and you exaggerate the evidence that does confirm what you already believe. That's confirmation bias. We do this in politics on a never-ending repeat. A new story comes out. And given the same exact story, you can turn on Fox News and it will tell us that that story is proof that President Trump is an unprecedented success and is facing an unprecedented opposition. And if you turn the channel, CNN will tell you the exact same story proves that President Trump is an unprecedented failure. It's the same thing. How do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we interpret new evidence in a way that it confirms what we've already decided to believe. We do this when we watch our kids participate in stuff. Right? We we have all decided that our kids are the most beautiful and the most athletic and the smartest And I don't know how you believe that about your kids when my kids already are those things. Oh, we believe that. So when we're watching them, we just, we exaggerate 
the stuff that proves what we already believe, and we shoo away the stuff, the information that might fly in the face of what we already believe. How do we do that mentally? How do we get that done? I'm going to borrow a, a phrase from John MacArthur here. John MacArthur says the way that we... Oh, I clicked on something I shouldn't have clicked on there. Let's try that again. John MacArthur says that to keep on believing what we already wanted to believe in the face of contrary evidence, here's what we do. We blur the obvious and we build up the irrelevant. That's how we pull this off mentally. We blur the obvious and we build up the irrelevant. Here's, here's a cartoonish example. Let's say you're at, the, at a game, your kid is playing and he punches a referee right in the face, throws himself on the ground, and has a temper tantrum. That's, that's the evidence. But I still want to believe my kid is terrific and awesome and would never, you know, is the best. So here's what I do. Here's how I might blur the obvious. I would say, you know, I know it looked like he intentionally punched that referee right in the nose, but did you see all the bugs that were out there? He was just swatting those babies away. And the ref just got in his way. And so it just, I mean, it just, it just happened. And then he was so upset, he just fell down in grief. And that's, that would be blurring the obvious. And then I might build up the irrelevant. And I might say, by the way, did you know that referee's from Grant? And he's never liked us. And that's why he threw those 12 flags. He probably had that coming. See, we, we blur the obvious. We build up the irrelevant so that we can keep on believing what we have already decided to believe. We want confirmation much more than we want information. We like to be told that what we already believe is right, is correct. Why are we like this? Pride, basically. Because it, like I always say, it feels better to feel better. We want to be superior. And if there's something that makes my team, my kids, my side, my whatever, seem less than I want it to, like my brain can't go there. So I will blur the obvious. I will build up the irrelevant so that I can keep on believing what I want to believe. Well, I... I bring all this up because as I was studying the story of Jesus going to his hometown, I'm pretty sure we see confirmation bias meet Jesus in Nazareth. I think the people of Nazareth had already decided they didn't like Jesus and they were going to reject his ministry. They just had to figure out how. So guess what they did? They blurred the obvious and they built up the irrelevant until they continue believing what they had already decided to believe before he ever came through. I want to show you that in these verses and then tell you how that can be dangerous for us, not when we are watching the news or watching our kids, how that's dangerous for the, for the, the benefit of the gospel in our lives and our community. How do we see confirmation bias happen? Well, if confirmation bias is 
taking evidence, blurring the obvious and building up the irrelevant so I don't really have to believe that evidence, we better start with some evidence. So let's look at the evidence that Jesus brought with him and displayed in Nazareth. In verse 54, we read that then Jesus came to his hometown. That's Matthew doesn't tell us that's Nazareth, but the other gospels do. And he began to teach the people in their synagogue. And they were astonished and said, where did this man get such wisdom and miraculous powers? Okay, synagogue is kind of the first century Jewish equivalent of a local church. It would not have been unusual for Jesus to be invited to teach, even if people disagreed with him. Here's a crazy thing that used to happen once upon a time. People used to actually listen to people they disagreed with. So that's not unusual that they would have him come and speak. And he would have gotten out scrolls and he would have, something we call the Old Testament. And I don't, we don't know what passage that he taught from. But he preaches from some Old Testament passage and And whatever it was, man, he must have really nailed this sermon. Because people are astounded. The word means can mean overwhelmed. They they agree wholeheartedly that he he is saying words of wisdom. Astounding wisdom. And even whether they've seen him do anything miraculous or not, they all agree that Jesus has miraculous powers. So he has authoritative teaching, incredible wisdom, and miraculous power. To a good Jew, where does all authority and wisdom and power come from? (laughs) From God. But these people, they go from being astounded and amazed and overwhelmed by his authority and wisdom and power And within four verses, they're offended by him. If you peek down in verse 57, if you have your Bible open, that word offended, or whatever your Bible might say, the Greek word skandalizo is where we get our word scandal from. They were scandalized by Jesus. They thought Jesus was scandalous. How do they move in that length of time from being overwhelmed by his wisdom and power to believing he's scandalous and should be rejected. They use confirmation bias. They blur the obvious. They build up the irrelevant so they can keep on believing what they wanted to believe before he showed up. So there's the evidence. Step one to believing what they already want to believe is to blur the obvious. Shows up in verse 54, again in verse 56. It's quick. So we might look over it. But it's always quick when we do this. Think about this. If you're being presented with evidence that's contrary to what you believe, how quickly do you want to get rid of that evidence? As quickly as possible. I don't want to hear that. So here's what they do. Look, look carefully at the questions they ask in response to the evidence Jesus is teaching and his miraculous power. Do they say, wow, look how and listen to how incredible his wisdom is and how powerful his power is. Is that what they say? 
No, how do they blur that evidence? They ask a question. Well, yeah, it's, it's, his miracles are miraculous and his wisdom sounds wise, but where did a guy like that, where did he get such wisdom and power? Do you, do you hear the blurring there? Where did Jesus, before this in Matthew, where did Jesus' enemies think or claim that Jesus got his power from? From God? No, from Satan. And they don't come right out and say it here. But here's how they blur the obvious. Every good Jew knows authority and wisdom and power come from God. That's what they've been presented with. And they go, well, yeah. But where did a guy like that get such thing? Where did it come from, huh? See, can't trust the source, so I can ignore that. They blur the obvious. Step two, in continuing to believe what you already want to believe. After you blur the obvious, you build up the irrelevant. This is, this is everything in verses 55 and 56. This is a diversion. It reads this way. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't all his sisters here with us? Where did he get all this stuff? All right, so they've blurred the obvious. Yeah, we've seen the evidence, but we can't trust the source. Now we're going to pull out a bunch of stuff that should be irrelevant. We knew this guy when he was just a kid. The Bible doesn't tell us a great deal about Jesus' childhood, but apparently he was pretty normal. There's a lot of legends about stuff Jesus supposedly did I don't, when he was a kid. I don't really believe them because of this. When he comes back through, he starts his ministry. They're like, he was just a neighbor kid. He had a snotty nose, and right? He's too normal. He's just a working stiff like the rest of us. The carpenter's kid. And we know that Jesus was a carpenter, too. He worked in that trade before he took off on his ministry. This is just a regular guy. He wasn't apprenticed to some famous rabbi. Where did he get all this stuff? If he would have gone to the university and been trained by the Sanhedrin, then maybe. But we know, it. We, we know where he comes from. And by the way, Shouldn't he, shouldn't he still just be a carpenter? His siblings still live here with us. Why doesn't he? There's a little bit of, he's trying to live above his station, which is our station. There's also something a little more derogatory and defamatory going on here. Did you notice that one of Jesus' parents is named by name and the other one isn't? Who's named by name? Mary. Joseph is not named by name. That's not because Joseph is dead by this time. Joseph very well could be dead by this time. I believe that he is, though we're not told. But that's not why they don't use his name. Jews use the names of dead people all the time. So-and-so was son of Abraham, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of, right? Um, that's not why Joseph isn't named. Here's what Jews didn't do. 
in the first century. They didn't call adult men the son of their mother unless an insult was intended. And it is here. This is a little bit of, we don't even know who this guy's daddy is. See, we know, we know, because Matthew told us at the beginning of this book that, that Jesus' mom, when, when, when Mary became pregnant, she wasn't married yet, and she hadn't been with Joseph in that way. We know the Holy Spirit did that miraculously in Mary. I'm guessing the people of Nazareth never fully caught on and believed that story, just like we probably wouldn't. This followed Jesus his whole life. In the book of John, he's having an argument uh, with, some, uh, with some different enemies, not in, in Nazareth. And they say something like, I believe it's John chapter 8. They say, we were not born of immorality. And the clear implication of it is, but you were. We know who our dads are. Now, do you see how all that's irrelevant? What does the circumstances around Jesus' birth and what his dad did for a living, what does that really have to do with whether or not his wisdom's wives and his power is powerful? It has absolutely nothing to do with it. It's irrelevant. But after we blur the obvious, we need to get our attention on something else. We build up the irrelevant. They want to keep Jesus on their level. He thinks he's somebody. And if he's somebody, that means I'm less than somebody. I can't have him be above me and my kids. They've blurred the obvious. They've built up the irrelevant. And they're rejecting Jesus. How does Jesus respond? He responds with a proverb not a biblical proverb, but this is like a cliche. This is a common saying in Jesus' day. Here's what he says. Well, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and his own house. He's not thinking of a, a real prophet in the Old Testament. This is just a saying that says something about human nature. We would say it something like this. We might say, every expert has to be from out of town. You ever hear something like that? Every expert has to be from out of town. I don't want somebody that I consider my equal to be an expert, because that makes me something less than an expert. This is why uh, some of you went to Lincoln yesterday. If you had gotten pulled over in Lincoln yesterday, and, and, the, and the police officer comes up, you don't know this guy, he's just doing his job. Probably most of you could have accepted his authority and taken your ticket, and I know I was doing it wrong, and I'll do better next time. And you sign, press hard, five copies, right? You sign your little thing, you take your ticket, and you go on. But go to your hometown and get pulled over by the guy you went to high school with. And what's your heart do then? Who does this guy think he is? Oh, he's got a badge now. He thinks he's really something. Right? The guy in Lincoln went to high school too. This is the reason why my buddies from high school, they don't have any interest in logging onto our website and listening to me preach from the Word of God. Right? Because they knew me when I was just like haphazardly transgressing the Word of God, and they don't want to hear me uh, preach from it now. Every expert's got to be from out of town. That's just human nature. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Even the prophets weren't liked in their hometown. But the real tragedy of this passage shows up in verse 58, where Matthew tells us that Jesus didn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Don't misunderstand what Matthew's saying here. Matthew was not saying that because the people of Nazareth didn't believe in him, Jesus couldn't do miracles. He was unable. Please don't picture Jesus like laying his hands on somebody out there going, come on, nothing. I got nothing. I can't do it. I'm trying, but you guys don't believe, so I can't heal you. No. Jesus did not and does not need someone's, he's not dependent upon someone's faith to do whatever he wants to do. We know that multiple ways. Jesus raised dead corpses back to life. Were they believing in him? There's a, you know the, the guy in the Gospel of John, I was blind, but now I see that guy. He didn't read the story. He didn't even know who Jesus was when Jesus made him be able to see. Jesus does not need, he doesn't need anything from us to do whatever he wants to do. So, what is going on here? Why, why didn't he do, I mean, first of all, did he do miracles in Nazareth? Read the verse. Did he do miracles in Nazareth? Nazareth? Yes. Just not very many. I mean, don't, don't sort of shoo that away. Isn't one miracle by definition pretty miraculous? <laughs> Right? What if he only, he only did one miracle? Right? Um, here's, I think there's two acceptable understandings, I think, uh, of, of why Jesus did few miracles in Nazareth. Because of their unbelief. I think the truth might even be some combination of these two, because he did do some Miracles. First explanation, maybe the simplest, is because Jesus became scandalous to the people of his hometown and they didn't like him. By the way, we, can all, we already knew if we read the other Gospels that people in Nazareth weren't keen on Jesus because Jesus' family went, uh, look at Mark chapter 3 sometime, they went to sort of pull him off of the ministry field and try to get him to be quiet. And my guess is because the people back home was making life hard for him. But because Jesus was scandalous to the people of Nazareth, maybe Jesus did few miracles because nobody showed up and asked for miracles. Right? Maybe he threw a miracle party and nobody attended. Or very few people attended. Because if everybody here has rejected Jesus, is it going to be hard for me if, if I go out and try to be a Jesus guy in the midst of a bunch of non-Jesus guys, so we'll just stay home? And the other explanation for this is that maybe and quite probably Jesus felt like doing a lot of miracles in the face of unbelief would have been inappropriate. Jesus did not need someone to believe for him to heal them. But he, he um, often used faith and healing in an object lesson that goes like this. You have believed in me Here's the blessing of God. Real healing comes from faith in Jesus Christ. 
And he would say things like, your faith has made you well. Faith brings real, ultimate healing from God. That's an object lesson. It's not that if I sit down and believe hard enough, then I won't have this crooked pinky anymore. It'll straighten right out. If I just, come on, believe. Nope, not yet. Oh, I must be doing something wrong. No. I think Jesus decided it would be most appropriate if he not put forth this message in his hometown. You can reject me and still get the blessing of God. That's probably not a very good lesson to teach. Because the real tragedy in Nazareth is not that sick people didn't become not sick anymore. The real tragedy in Nazareth was that if these people didn't change their mind before they died, they lost out on eternal life. That's the real tragedy. And Jesus wants to make sure he's consistent in that message. Okay. Do you see how confirmation bias met Jesus in his hometown? He presented some evidence. The people in Nazareth blurred the obvious and built up the irrelevant so that they could keep on believing what they had decided to believe already. You see that? I hope so. Good. Because now I want to visit with you just for the rest of our time about how confirmation bias, our ability, people's ability to do that is still dangerous to the cause of Christ. And for unbelievers and believers, most obviously in non-Christians, what happened to Jesus in Nazareth is still happening to Jesus all the time for the same reason. People don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't want to believe they're going to be held accountable to God. Because if God is really God, I'd better do what he says, and I want to do what I want to do. And so I don't want to hear, if I'm an unbeliever and I do not want to believe in a God, I really don't want to hear your evidence. Or I've got to find a way to blur it. I could go through lots of evidences for Christ. My favorite one is, the, what is the main evidence that Jesus Christ was who he said he was? You know what the main evidence of the truth of Christ is? It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. That's the evidence. That's the evidence that demands a verdict, if you know that book. It's the resurrection. Because listen, the cross may have been where the disciples' sin was paid for. The cross may have been what allowed them to be forgiven. But the cross did not make the disciples super missionaries that changed the world. Do you know that? The cross made them scared. The cross put them into hiding. After Jesus was crucified, they were hiding because they thought they might be next and they didn't want to die. But a few days later, they met the risen Jesus. And then things changed. Then they were like, wait a second. So Jesus rose again and he said, I, he's the resurrection and the life. He said, I'm going to be resurrected because I believe in him. All of a sudden now, those same disciples, they're super missionaries. Because you Romans, you Jews, you can kill me, but you can't keep me dead. 
All right, that's the evidence. And I have, I have yet to hear a reasonable explanation for how the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed those 11 guys and some other people around them into super missionaries who changed the entire world if Jesus really didn't come out of that grave alive. That's the evidence. But if I don't want to believe that there is a God that I'm accountable to, guess what I do? I blur the obvious. Oh, that just can't happen. That's supernatural stuff. I don't believe in miracles. And I'll immediately go to building up the irrelevant. No, oh, a church is full of hypocrites. Oh, yeah, there it is. But there's room for more. Come on in. The church is full of hypocrites. I can't go to church there because there's this one gal that goes to church there. And I don't... Yeah, well... One more person comes and there'll be somebody else people don't like. We got room. Come on. Right? Uh, or all oh, you just people use that as a crutch or you can't tell me what happened to the dinosaurs. Listen, what does all of our excuses, what does it have to do with the question of did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he die for my sins? Did he rise from the dead? Is he really the way, the truth, and the life? Is he the, the, the narrow gate? Is, the, the, is he the door to the sheepfold? Is he the bread of heaven? All of our excuses are extremely irrelevant if that stuff is true. But we don't like evidence that contradicts what we've already chosen to believe. So we'll blur the obvious and build up the irrelevant till we can keep believing what we want to believe. That's how confirmation bias is still going on in unbelievers. But listen, Christian. If you're here this morning and you do not have a bias against Jesus, you do believe He died on the cross under the weight of your sins. He rose again from the dead as proof that you will too. If you believe that, confirmation is still a problem for you and for me. And here's how. We do not just use confirmation bias when we're watching our kids play sports or we're deciding which news channel we will only listen to. This is bigger than that. As Christians, as Christ followers, we bear the name of Jesus and his reputation. We are, as he said, his witnesses that the evidence is true. And an invisible God makes his invisible grace known how? Through us. The world learns how Jesus operated by watching us and how we operate. We, we carry the banner of the gospel, the gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of reconciliation the gospel of peace, the gospel of unity. We march under those banners and we believe in them until somebody hurts me. See, I'm fine with it when he's the one who is hurt for my benefit, but don't ask me to be the one to hurt and still go after someone's benefit 
Because ain't nobody got time for that. And here's what we do. It's confirmation bias. It's confirmation bias. It's confirmation bias. You hurt me. You make me feel low. You make me feel inadequate. You steal from me. You whatever. My pride goes to work. My self-focus goes to work. My bitterness gets mixed in. And I start hearing this voice about what a rotten, dirty, low-down scalawag you are. And I don't have to take that from you. And very quickly, I put you in a little container in my heart labeled bad guy. You're a bad guy. You're a, you're a, and I'm done with you. And then guess what I spend the rest of my dealings with you doing? I build evidence against you that confirms what I've already decided. I keep a long list of everything you've ever done so that I can keep believing you are what I have decided that you are. And then, if I get new information, if you do something good, if you do something that is kind, if you do something that might be uh, considered something like maturity and spiritual growth, I will blur the obvious. Oh, he just wants to seem good in front of everybody else. He is not really like that. He hasn't changed. You can't believe that. And I will build up the irrelevant. I'll go back to my list of stuff that should have been forgiven to irrelevancy. And I'll start reading it off. Oh, that doesn't matter anymore. Let me tell you the 15 other things she did. Why? Why do I do that? Because I want to, it feels better to feel better. And I want to keep on believing about you what I've decided to believe. And why is that dangerous? Because the banner we march under says this. God went to a cross and was hurt by us, was murdered by us, and never stopped going toward our good and our benefit. Church, what a powerful testimony for the gospel we can have if we'll only live by it instead of merely believing it. What a powerful testimony for the gospel we have when someone hurts us and we do not stop valuing their growth and their benefit. That's grace and mercy. It just might be that someday somebody might say, how can you be like that? I say, let me tell you what the real God really did for me. See, my confirmation bias when I'm constantly building my case against you, the truth is, I don't want you to improve or grow because then I have more evidence. I might have to admit I've been wrong. And I don't want to do that. But if my goal is grace and mercy 
and reconciliation. If that's always my goal, when you grow, that's when I get to be right. Right? And as long as I'm building the case of your bad guyness against you, the only way I get to be right is if you stay a bad guy. See that the gospel puts us on the side of your benefit and your growth and my love and help for you. It's hard, but it's powerful. Would you pray with me and the musicians will come up and we'll, we'll end. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, that you died under the weight of our sin, that we hurt you, we killed you, you accepted the pain and refused to make us pay for what we had done to you. But God, we tend to be so much not like you because we want the people who hurt us to pay. And we become a barrier to the gospel around us. God, open the eyes of our hearts. We want to see you. God, turn us into gospel, living Jesus following Christ-like people who stop looking for the loopholes to continue believing what we want to believe and start living the major passages of our faith about grace and mercy and peace and reconciliation and unity. God, that you might be made great. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.